This is a Tadad podcast. Hi, everybody. Welcome to today's episode of the TADT podcast. I'm Beto Ha from the Tadat Secretariat. Today's live stream is a two part event scheduled to last two hours. The first part features our colleagues at the Inter American Center for Tax Administrations, or CIIT, will present their network, the International Tech Station Network, or ITN, and discuss their relationship with Tadat. They will also talk about their achievements and the work they've been doing recently within ITN. In the second part of the event, Monica Calajuri, the Inter American Development Bank's leading tax administration specialist, will hold a round table discussion. The discussion will focus on how developing countries with restricted capacities in tax management can tackle the challenges that can be encountered in international taxation. The audience will be invited to ask a few questions after the round table. We ask that audience members submit their questions via the chat section of our YouTube channel, on LinkedIn, or through an email to tadat at podcast.org. Now, Gonzalo and Annabel will begin their discussion. Thanks a lot, Umberto. I'd like to thank the International Monetary Fund, especially the Tadat Secretariat, for holding this podcast with us. And I want to thank the colleagues of the Inter-American Development Bank for joining us on this occasion, as well as the Federal Administration of Public Revenues and the DGI of Uruguay for joining us on this podcast. Now, let's get the presentation up on the screen. As Umberto mentioned, we're going to talk a bit about the CIAT International Taxation Network. As you can see on the screen, these are photos of the last meetings we had. Some of these were face-to-face meetings, with the more recent done virtually, and we hope to return to in-person soon. The work this network does is very much related to Tadat. Because, as you already know, international taxation is based on fundamental processes of tax administrations. These processes are what Tadat evaluates in each of its POAs, or performance outcome areas. So, for example, in terms of the integrity of the registered taxpayer base, making sure a multinational company is properly registered and maintained is essential for effective tax administration. Risk management speaks for itself. Voluntary compliance assumes most taxpayers will comply with their obligations given the proper tools and guidance, which we also expect from major companies with international operations. There's also the on-time filing of declarations, as well as the on-time payment of taxes. Accurate reporting in declarations is also really important, and it's an issue that has created quite a stir in transfer price. Effective tax dispute resolution is an outcome area that we're going to discuss and that we're currently doing with the Inter-American Development Bank and EUROSOCIAL. There is also efficient revenue management and an important issue such as accountability and transparency. You can see that each of the points that Tadat deals with can be touched on. Much of what we do complements each other. We have databases, and these databases are managed through indicators. There are a number of issues that are evaluated for a certain aspect, including, for example, transfer pricing, a specific topic, or BEPS. And we have come up with indicators that are not in Tadat, but that can be used by advisors to better assess a country's tax administration. We also work in technical assistance, where we use Tadat to evaluate some areas of interest to countries. 
We propose recommendations through select studies and best practices, and we also provide some databases that offer data from the Tax Administration for decision-making. Let's go to the next slide. Objectives of the International Tax Network. To begin, it's to hold discussions with countries to find out what they're working on and what they need. And based on that, we see or analyze what we can do to fulfill the needs of these countries in conjunction with the members of the network. We likewise support the sharing of breakthroughs in international taxation and best practices. It's been tougher lately with virtual meetings, but at face-to-face -face meetings we try to get the leading employees in international taxation various countries to become acquainted. And as a result, trust is built, which leads to greater cooperation. We're also looking to promote peer-to-peer -peer cooperation and technical assistance, helping to pass on these best practices. This can be heard in discussion forums, but we sometimes need to move from discussion to practice, and that requires collaboration between tax administrations. Background at CIAT about the International Taxation Network. This is the working group on the control of international tax planning from 2005 to 2007. At the time, it was sponsored by the Federal Administration of Public Revenues and the Standing Committee on International Tax Planning, and it had also been promoted by the Federal Administration of Public Revenues. A number of products were introduced at the time, but the one I want to highlight is one that is still on the CIAT website, in the library. It's from 2007, and it's the Manual on Control of International Tax Planning, which is really cutting edge. We can find a lot of the topics that are covered today in BEPS. But it has an aspect that is quite interesting, which is a catalog of cases that countries have submitted to produce the manual. They are classified by economic sector, by type of planning, and the structure of the cases is divided between an outline, the operation, and the instrument that the taxpayer has used to carry out his aggressive planning. It's also a fairly useful manual that I think everyone should read. Let's go to the next slide. Now we're going to talk about the network. Like I always say, it's not a meeting. It's not like we gather once a year at a meeting. The meetings are basically to account for what we're doing. To attempt to identify new initiatives. To show what our partners are doing. International organizations, donors, universities. Everyone related to us. And in order to raise some topic that we want to put on the discussion table, the network is open and isn't just restricted to tax administrations. Sometimes we invite companies or experts from the private sector. They provide us a perspective where we, from CIAT and with the administrations, need to recognize that sometimes we are focused on tax. Being able to discuss these issues with those on the other side helps us become more objective when drawing conclusions. In addition, they give us feedback on what our future agenda should be. But the focus of the network is on tax administrations. As I said at the beginning, it's about providing services to the tax administrations. The members are obviously the tax administrations, perhaps even ministries of finance. And I point this out because CIAT is directly related to tax administrations. Our representatives are the tax administrations. Although ministries, which in many cases are responsible for negotiating double taxation treaties and other international taxation issues, usually take part in our meetings. We deal with international organizations. Here's the Inter-American Development Bank, the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, the United Nations, the International Monetary Fund, 
with non-governmental organizations such as Latin Debt Network and with the Academy as well. We often work with the University of Vienna or the University of Maastricht and with the Leiden University and Externadu University of Colombia or even the University of Buenos Aires and other universities and study centers. We work with several donors who support us. I'll speak a bit more about that aspect and with stakeholders from the private sector. Perhaps our most valuable product is the pool of experts. Without an expert base, which is the network itself, we wouldn't be able to do everything you see down there on the left side of the slide, respond to inquiries, produce manuals, create proposals and working papers or tools, provide technical support, build databases, and also to hold events on topics that are critical to the countries and the partners we have, the universities. The OECD is the regulatory body dealing with international taxation and a highly strategic and key partner of the network, one we've had frequent meetings with over the year. The Inter-American Development Bank is our partner in the region, and we've done many things with them. We've had quite a track record of technical assistance, and we have worked and will continue to work on a number of projects. The Monetary Fund is not really a player we often work with on international taxation issues, but it is a historical partner in many aspects, which are directly or indirectly related to like the World Bank and other organizations. For example, the OAS, which has just joined the IATTC on issues related to public information. We also have partners who sometimes contribute funds and are technical partners as well. And once again here I mentioned the Inter-American Development Bank. There's an initiative that deals with issues related to mining companies. This is within this important initiative and has something to do with tax issues. We organize activities with them every year. It's a rather important partner able to bridge the knowledge gap that exists in the region related to a sector that is quite complex. Non-governmental organizations like Latindat also allow us to organize an annual meeting within the network with civil society, the tax administrations, ministries of finance, and other relevant organizations. The United Nations is also a partner that also supports us in conducting meetings, and we will almost surely be arranging a number of meetings with them in 2023 on international tax issues. Other partners, the private sector, the companies, the advisors, and the experts. This group includes the experts who work with us to provide technical assistance. Many of them were officials in tax administrations, advisors from the big four, or from boutique advisory firms that have taken part in our activities. And the companies play an important role because we've held some worthwhile events where companies tell us firsthand how their value chain works. Before beginning an audit process, this should be done in a pleasant way in a pseudo-academic environment. I think this holds a lot of value for us. In fact, the activities that we've been involved in with the OECD and the Inter-American Development Bank on tax morality with companies and advisors have also been quite useful in providing us with feedback on what the tax administrations should do. This slide is pretty big, and it shows the catalog of products that we have working on and are presently developing in the network. As you can see, there are some that are in gradient colors. Those are the ongoing projects, and those that are fully colored are those that we've already completed. 
regardless of the fact that, in some cases, they are continuous initiatives that is, they begin and do not end. You'll notice that we have a line of work on tax planning. This includes a manual with 48 authors and 43 chapters. It's an update on the manual that I mentioned before on tax planning, published back in 2007. A lot of water has passed under the bridge, so an update was really needed to incorporate new material. This is closely related to the base of transnational cases of the erosion of the tax base that we're going to touch on later. And a few case studies to discuss and work on with countries in an academic way that we are currently developing with the University of Maastricht. We also have courses, or are planning to offer them. That's why it's all blank. We're not there yet. Preparing a course on tax planning for tax administrations, based on this material. We have databases. I think this is one of the issues that's most related to TADA. Because, as I said before, the databases are made up of indicators. And they go a bit deeper than TDAT in some respects. So, it doesn't hurt for an advisor to take a look at these databases to review the data and to see how our indicators are doing, and maybe use them to dig deeper into their assessments. We also have technical assistance. We work on a number of them. There are some demands for these topics and inquiries. These are two rather attractive services that we provide. On the one hand, we offer a consultancy service, which is a service that is done in writing. And there's the tax help desk. That's when something can't be answered in writing and needs an explanation. We arrange video conferences between the countries that provide assistance and or information about an experience or a point of view that helps reach decisions on some critical matter in the requesting country. Next, we have documents on specific topics that are of interest, and some are experimental. For example, the impact of inflation on the definition of transfer prices, which is something that we worked on back in 2012, and that today perhaps draws more attention. This slide discusses the tools. We have digital economy compliance that lets us apply a bit of what's in the toolkit that we developed with the OECD, the Inter-American Development Bank, and the World Bank on how to collect VAT in the digital economy. This is software that puts these recommendations to work. There is DIP, the Public Information Availability Tool, which helps make it available to the people in charge of control in the tax administrations, sources of international public information from many countries. Also, the maturity model we are working on with the IDB. Later, we'll discuss dispute prevention and resolution. This is also a rather intriguing initiative that is closely related to TADAT, particularly with the POA7, Resolution of Tax Disputes. It is a directory of jurisprudence that we are working on in matters of international taxation. Then we have proposals. Our cocktail of transfer pricing measures for developing countries. We're working with Mexico, the OECD, and ATAF on a proposal dealing with how to address amount V within Pillar 1 of BEPS Action 1. And some events that we conduct routinely, or not routinely, with activities. This is basically the map of what we do. Now I'd like to go more into depth on what our products are and what they consist of. Over here is the Transfer Pricing Database. It's perhaps one of the most comprehensive databases out there on the situation of the countries with respect to the regulatory adoption and effective implementation of the transfer prices. We've been working on this project for years, and we've updated, restructured, and improved with each update. We implement improvements on an ongoing basis based on data requested by countries. 
I think it does a lot of good because it allows us to see, to benchmark how we are in the region with respect to the transfer pricing issue. But it also allows us to make assessments. When we have something in a country like a transfer pricing project, we use the information from the database or the survey to be able to make a diagnosis and see what's there and what's missing. We've used it in Bolivia, where we've been working closely on the implementation of transfer pricing with the Swiss cooperation and now hand-in-hand -hand with the Norwegian cooperation. It's quite an informative database that provides us data, as you can see on the screen, as of when the transfer pricing rules were enacted, when they came into force, or when the first audits were conducted. Although much has been said about this topic, most countries have been experiencing it since 2010. So, this is somewhat interesting. And then we can see who has upfront pricing agreements, which are the highest risk sectors or the most audited sectors, and the most commonly used methods. There's a variety of relevant data that you can see in the database. Now I'm going to give the floor to Anarela so that she can tell us about some specific data that needs to be discussed from this database. We have a tab related to APAs, advanced pricing agreements, on which countries have the possibility to subscribe to APAs and in which sectors they apply to have more APAs. Or who has the possibility of signing the APAs, but doesn't. This is something I invite you to investigate on the basis of prices. Another could be who has controls or mechanisms to ensure that taxpayers are complying with the requirement of the pricing system, which is related to POA 4 and 6, about the timely filing of declarations. There's a lot about this. Another database we have is the BEPS database. This initiative came about as a result of some countries asking us about certain BEPS measures, which one of their peers had implemented it. So we decided to build a database so that countries could support themselves on that basis, instead of making specific queries. And to have an idea of how the recommendations of the BEPS actions are being implemented in other countries, and what experiences have been observed. Here, it should be noted that it is information that has been reported to us by countries. This is not an OECD peer review. However, we have 37 countries, with data from 2021, and we're updating the information. I don't know if there's anything else to say from here. Gonzalo? Yes, now our idea is to update these bases every year. I realize it's an effort for our member states, but I think the sum of the parts makes this work quite valuable. Like Anarela said, it lets you know who's doing what and how they did it. Countries asked a lot of questions. What are my peers doing? Because that's where the answers are. In practical implementation. Which isn't in the books. What happened? That's the question. And many are related to issues that are probably the hottest in the region. Risk management, prevention, and the relationship with the taxpayer. I think all of this is grouped together into Action 12. I really believe it's one of the hardest to manage because it requires a very refined risk management by the countries in order to give the taxpayer an accurate response in a timely way. If that doesn't happen, it doesn't have the desired impact on Action 12, and it becomes just another information system. Action 13 also points a lot to the issue of risks. I think it's an action that changes a bit the way that transfer pricing is going to work in the future. At least it will fill a void of historical information, although not everything. 
But it strikes me that, because it relates to transfer pricing, one of the most important issues for countries in the region, which have historically implemented international taxation, the recommendations of Actions 8, 9, and 10 have not been so implemented by these countries. Because I believe that they added value in all cases to improve the transfer pricing system based on the OECD transfer pricing guide. And then another topic that also has a lot to do with Tadat, which I believe is a major challenge for countries that many have implemented, but that we now have to see how it works, is Action 14 of BEPS. I think it is one of the most critical actions, and it'll most certainly gain more traction, especially if the topic of the pillars comes up, mainly Pillar 1. Let's see the next slide, please. Here we have the Manual on the Control of International Tax Planning. This manual was originally published in 2007. Now we're in the midst of updating it, given that there's new issues that have come up since then. For example, BEPS, digitization, crypto assets, and many others. The overall objective of this manual is to help tax administration officials understand the main behaviors of taxpayers and tips on how to handle these behaviors in a preventive or reactive manner. In addition, some administrative matters, pertinent to the tax administration, are included. All these topics could be used by a TADOT evaluator, taking them into account when making their recommendations. They have to do with certain things such as dispute resolution, tax returns, and others. The manual includes six chapters, divided into 42 sections, and has been produced by 48 authors. All are members or experts from the Inter-American Center of Tax Administration's CIAT network. For example, international organizations, universities, tax administration officials from the private sector, and others. Sections are being published in spreadsheet form. This basically means that they're being published one section at a time. Right now, we have eight sections published. And next month we'll be publishing section 5.3 on international cooperation, written by the Global Forum, along with 5.5 on cooperative compliance, written by Leiden University and others. We suggest that you keep checking back on the CIAT website to see the new sections that will appear each month. We invite you to download and read them. Thank you, Ana. Well, this is a GAAR issue, which stands for General Anti-Abuse or Anti-Evasion Standards. This is a really significant topic, and it's included in the manual that Anarello was just talking about. But here we wanted to discuss it a bit more in depth along with the University of Leiden, with the support of EUR Societal and the German cooperation from a different perspective and based on a toolkit approach, because this issue has posed many problems for some countries. General anti-abuse standards are a clear solution. General anti-abuse standards are needed because we can't have a specific anti-abuse standard for each of the risks that a tax administration has to deal with. Specific anti-abuse standards are usually created when a risk is very significant and recurring. But we still don't know all the risks that can be generated, particularly in relation to the interpretation of the standards or the business models that companies have. We've also noticed that the taxpayers' distrust of the tax administration in some countries has not had a positive impact in relation to the application of general anti-abuse standards. Many countries have had to discontinue applying them. Others have them and have not applied them, roughly 30% of the countries in the region. Others are still discussing how they're going to apply them. 
That is, they are significant powers that, applied arbitrarily, could lead to some problems. As such, trust needs to be built first. Shown here is the regulatory and strategic aspect, how to approach it, and how the effective design of a general anti-abuse standard should be. Considering that there is no standard model of what a general anti-abuse rule is, that a country can base itself on local or international experience or on soft law or on proposals by international organizations and adapt them, we show how the introduction should be managed. You have to be aware of it before, during, after, and who. And there is the part of planning and operationalizing these standards, which is also important because they are closely linked to risk management. Risk management has to work well. Identification needs to work well. And then, with an objective committee, define when this general anti-abuse standard applies and how it will be done in a reasonable way. You can find all of this in this toolkit, which is pretty comprehensive. It has a self-diagnostic tool and includes a few decision tree charts. First off, to see if a GAAR is needed or not and what to do, whether or not you have a GAAR, what to do. Whether or not you have an international GAAR, such as the one proposed in Action 6 of BEPS, which is also in Action 15, as well. If it should or shouldn't be implemented in the agreements, and why and how to use it. It's quite an important document, and somewhat brief given its content. I think that what is short and useful is twice as effective. I recommend it. Let's go to the next one. This is a really intriguing and innovative project, the provision of public information. This is being done in a network related to the International Taxation Network, which is the public information network. And it is a project that was requested by the countries under the context of a meeting on control of multinational companies. The countries at this meeting stated, what we need is to know what public information exists and how to use it. We took the idea and discussed it with various organizations. We received support from the German cooperation at the time. And, after a number of years of conducting an analysis on feasibility and holding discussions with various countries, developing software, and so on, we managed to get it up and running. Imagine the situation for the character on the island depicted here on this slide. He could be an official at a tax administration who was caught in a sea full of bottles with information. But he's having trouble accessing this information. One of these issues is the language and not knowing how to access it. The fact that public information is not published. It's public, but you've got to go look for it in an office on the other side of the world. The fact that you look for it, go through all the trouble, and then come to the conclusion, it won't work. Then he drowns in the sea. Check out the sharks on the slide. Then there's the issue of uncertainty. Does certain information exist or not exist as public? This is to comply with the principle of subsidiarity which would lead to the use of an Article 26 of a treaty or a formal agreement for sharing information. Then there's also the time. How long is it going to take? And, when I get this public information, will it help me? Is it appropriate? and information overload, there is so much public information that I'm not even sure where to start. Proposing is a GPS. Where's the information? And the transportation, the ship over here on the slide. How do you get to that information? Today we have 370 sources from 45 countries with 8 organizations grouped into 37 categories. Let's take a look at the next slide. You can see why I compared it to a GPS and transportation. 
Because it's not just a link to the source of public information or a reference to the source of public information. The thing we're saying is whether that information is on a website or it has not been posted. If you have to go look for it at some office, what's the name of the organization that manages the source? Or what's the procedure to gain access to the information? Like a step-by-step -step guide, step number one, step number two, step number three, etc. The data needed to tap into the source and the information you'd find if you access the source. This is important, too. Because the sources of public information are asymmetrical. One country may have 10 fields in the public register of companies, but another country may have only two. So it's important to know what information I will get to find out if it's worth the effort. Also, there's the cost of information. The availability states three languages on the slide. But now we're working on a new system. It will include the four official languages of CIAT, Portuguese, English, Spanish, and French. And search criteria can now be combined. This can be by country or by category, whether the information is available or not, or by keyword. And, of course, it will include a link to access the information. So as you can see, this is quite an important document. We can now move on to the next one, and I'll hand things over to Anarella, who will tell us more about this initiative. Thank you. I'm going to comment quickly since I just realized we don't have that much time. In line with POA 7 on dispute resolution, CIAT, together with EURO Social and the Inter-American Development Bank, are developing an initiative known as the Maturity Model. Five specialists were hired to create a diagnostic tool that allows tax administrations to assess their degree of maturity in three key areas. The first is disputes prevention. Second, domestic disputes resolution. And the third deals with international disputes resolution. The tool addresses these issues related to its legal standards, as well as administrative procedures and operating capabilities. All with the ultimate goal of looking for opportunities to improve, being able to reach the ideal level of resource management, facilitating decision-making, being able to effectively apply cooperation funds, etc., because it helps identify any needs. Once the model has been applied in various countries, it will also help determine the regional needs. We're working on this right now and hope to have a pilot test ready by March 2023 at the earliest. Thanks a lot, Anna. Now, in the interest of time, I'm going to speak briefly on the transnational case and the erosion of the tax base. This is something we've been working on with the University of Maastricht. It is available now. Fortunately, we've had a lot of support from our tax administrations, and the goal is to fill a void. I recall when, before the pandemic, I'd go in person to offer technical assistance to tax administrations, and they'd always ask me if I knew about another country that had a case similar to the one they were telling me about. I responded that each case is confidential. Honestly, I don't know which country connects to which case. We should ask. This was starting to happen again. A lot of them asked, especially in countries that were starting to have issues with international taxation. And that's when the idea of creating a base case of international tax planning emerged. This was first put on the table at the International Taxation Network at the first meeting we had in Cartagena de Indias. 
And I recall the countries commenting, well, look, I really don't care how you resolve the case. What interests me is how the risk was identified. The focus of this base is therefore to present the risk, how this risk was identified, and basically, with what information. So we created a model with the University of Castilla-La Mancha and the University of Maastricht with feedback from the countries. We collected cases and tried to align them so that they would all be similar. It's very difficult to put a case within a template. But the idea is to provide some information to help countries that analyze the database create a catalog of risks. If any risk is unknown, and if it is a known risk, contact another tax administration to identify cooperation measures if the case is from the same sector and there are similar risks. So I think it has enormous potential. Although we already have a few years, we're just getting started. This is a pilot phase and I believe we will for sure improve the presentation of information and also coordinate cooperation between countries around this initiative. Let's take a look at the next slide. Here I can talk about what's inside the base. First, we come across a country profile, which gives us general information about the tax system of the country that is reporting the case. For example, if there's a territorial or overall income tax. If there are treaties, concepts of stable establishment, special systems, etc. All of this helps us to understand the context in which the case is likely to be encountered. Then there's the analysis of the case itself, the background on what happened. It starts with a design to help understand, along with details of the case, how the risk was identified, comments from the official who is reporting, comments from the person on behalf of CIAT or the University of Maastricht who is reviewing the case. Here it should be noted, as Gonzalo pointed out, that the focus is on identifying risks. As such, they don't necessarily draw a conclusion about what happened at the end of the case. It's how the risk was identified. When accessing the database, you can use the search engine to find the information you are looking for, depending on country or risk, industry, or keyword. Here you can see the main risks that come from the cases that are in the database. You see transfer pricing manipulation is on the head. It's the subject where most work is done in the region. But it's good to see also that other less interesting risks appear but they'll grow as hybrids. For example, the subject of treaty abuse. There are more and more treatises in the region. Commissioner's agreements. Restructuring problems. There are a number of topics. And it's also important to note that in most cases they have more than one risk. Because they are complex planning schemes that deal with various risks. Let's take a look at the next slide. Here, we're looking at abuse by economic sector. The sectors boasting the greatest risks reported are manufacturing, design, sales, and agriculture. While other sectors, some with many intangible assets, have fewer risks reported. They are energy, financial, or telecommunications. It would be interesting to find out more about this phenomenon. Whether it is just because those were the cases reported, or what happened, or what the reason is. Maybe it's the ease of auditing these sectors. And finally, I'd like to mention that these databases, usually the CIAT databases, tend to be public. They are available in English and Spanish. 
With the exception of the base for making public information available and this base of cases, which are restricted to those who contribute information, only the tax administrations that contribute information. While all private or confidential data is removed, we believe that information about cases provided by countries based on their experience should not be made public. And since we're talking about this project, now, I'd like to introduce you to two colleagues and friends who have played significant roles in the work by the network and to all the products we've showed recently. Marcia Grostein, in charge for the Department of International Taxation, Division of Major Taxpayers of the General Tax Directorate, DGI, of Uruguay. And Veronica Grandona, from the International Taxation Directorate of the Federal Administration of Public Revenue of Argentina. They're going to talk to us about two cases. Once case each. What do they have to do with this base that we've just featured? So, first, I'll turn things over to Marcia so that she can tell us about the case she has prepared. Good morning, everyone. It's a pleasure to share the experiences we've had in Uruguay at the Uruguay Tax Administration. There are some things that Gonzalo touched on that are very significant in this specific case I'll be discussing. Because the question is, how come we don't identify the risk before conducting the audit? And why did I choose this case? Because this case confirmed to us how important it is to perform risk management. Not just in transfer pricing, but in matters of international taxation. And you know, Gonzalo, that I'm an absolute advocate for risk management to be a management of global risk. The instruments that multinational companies have mainly to do tax planning, aggressive or not. I think this case has given us full strength and we now have risk management in terms of international taxation. We specifically take all the information we have and cross-reference it in an aggregate way. Let's talk about the treaty shopping case, imbalance of imports through unknown permanent establishment and transfer price. And the order in which it appears is not trivial. That is the order because the most important thing wasn't the transfer prices. Because if we had focused on the transfer price, we would have what we call an elephant. Next slide, please. The operation was very simple. Still, it had to be done. It was supposedly a simple audit of a machine leasing activity as a linked operation. But I'll tell you about the operation. It was a Uruguayan company, ask. It's a made-up name, in Turkish it means love. The company sold energy to a Uruguayan state agency. To do this, it leased machinery from a company in Germany. The rest of its costs were all with well-known Uruguayan construction companies. What we had, then, was a leasing transaction to a German company. If you look over here, the first thing we had was this. The lease contained an invoice from a German company to the Uruguayan company. The majority of the costs for running the Uruguayan company were due to this machinery leasing. Later on, over time, we came to this. Mind you, we don't see any tax haven here. Here you see all the companies in developed countries with high tax levels. And that's an important point. Let's go on to the other slide. To better understand this case, it's important to take a look at Uruguayan laws which is right over here. We have what we call the padlock rule. It's an anti-hybrid rule. Only expenses that constitute income for the counterparty taxed by the IRA, the IRPF or the non-resident income tax may be deducted. 
or by an effective taxation of at least 25%. And if it's not taxed at 25%, there is a proportional deduction. There's also the non-resident income tax. This basically taxes the activities performed in Uruguay at a general rate of 12%, and it's for the income received. And there is a retention on the part of the Uruguayan company that pays. Retention happened when a treaty is applied. Recalling that the treaties apply automatically in Uruguay. At some point, it was thought to follow the path of Ecuador. The treaties are not applied automatically with the mere simple presentation of proof of tax residence. But the idea was abandoned. At this point, Ecuador made a change and lifted that resolution. But coming back, this point is also important. The Uruguay-Germany Treaty is the only agreement where the use and the right to use industrial and commercial equipment is included in Article 7 of the treaty for the benefit of companies. As such, if there's no permanent establishment of the German company in Uruguay, it is taxable in Germany. So, we have an activity, machine leasing, that takes place in Uruguay that would not be taxed by non-resident income tax. It's an activity conducted by a German company that is a non-resident but is not subject to income tax due to the treaty with Germany. Because it is duly included in Article 7. All of this, of course, is presented thoroughly detailed. But it took us a long time to digest it. That audit took us four months. Now let's move on to the diagram. The diagram, which we've put on a really big board, was done piecemeal. It's like when someone wants to find a killer. Similarly, we have been adding points to this big picture. The Uruguayan company's headquarters were in the United States. We have a lot of issues with American companies, precisely with the padlock rule. So, the machinery came straight from the United States. This isn't a problem for us. And now I'm going to explain why. If there's anything charged from one company to another company, but this second company generates added value, this is not an issue for us even if it comes from another country. First, there was a permanent establishment. We later discovered it, and it was this discovery that led us to suspect there was another problem. It's important to point out that the Uruguayan company had a pretty solid operating profit because it had this expense deduction that was between independent parties. So, we did our study. We compared the company with samples of the same type, comparing it with companies that some might be linked to. But we compared it to a group of companies that may be involved in this type of business, even if it's not necessarily the same as the sample we determined, because there are companies with related activities. But coming back, we have assumed that the machinery leasing operation was between independent parties. With that, we could have ended the audit here. But one of the sticking points was, when the taxpayer said that the machinery, the owner, was a permanent establishment of a Spanish company, we began to investigate a bit more and came to this. We found out there was a German company. And why did they choose the German company to invoice and not the Spanish company? Precisely because of the difference in the agreement regarding the assignment of the use of industrial machinery. In Article 12 of the Treaty with Spain, there was shared tax authority. In the Treaty with Germany, it was the tax power of Germany, which is in Article 7. 
When looking at the German company, that although it pays a rate of 33%, it only left a peso of taxable value at a rate of 28%. Look at the 120 minus 119 in the slide. And that was the only tax they paid on the income from those leases. We made a deduction of 120. And they only pay taxes for one peso in Germany. We discovered that the company in Germany was one that definitely had no added value. There were a lot of companies at the same site. We're talking about Germany. Even if it's a common scheme of any other country. They told us they were in Germany for the sake of contracts, etc. But we showed them that there was no point, no added value. But then, this permanent establishment in the United States. Why? We soon found that out too. Why did they have a permanent establishment in the United States if it was a Spanish company? What was going on? The U.S. didn't recognize them. The United States ignored this permanent establishment. That's why we put ignored permanent establishment in the title. Because you don't have income to allocate to it. Because, at the end of the day, the income was not generated in the United States. There was no income to allocate to the permanent establishment, so the U.S. did not recognize it. But what about Spain? Spain does recognize this permanent establishment in the USA. And what is the Spanish internal standard? What does it say? It says that profits from a permanent establishment of a Spanish company, if taxed at a similar tax rate of at least 10%, would not be taxed in Spain. But this standard includes a second part. And it says that this rule comes into effect if there is a double taxation treaty with a clause to prevent the exchange of information. And the treaty between Spain and the United States has it. Therefore, Spain received this profit and did not tax it. Then, as a rule, it was flowing to the United Kingdom. That's why I mention it here, it was going in the form of dividends, which were also not taxed by EU internal regulation. What conclusion do we arrive at from all of this? On the one hand, the treaty shopping. Also, the ignored. Ultimately, we didn't know about the existence of Germany and Spain. For us, the activity was definitely with the United States. Not because the machinery came from the United States but because all this planning was meaningless. There was nothing anywhere. The Spanish company was also like the German one. It did not generate any added value. It was with a well-known Spanish law firm. To sum up, what happened to us was, they violated our padlock rule, which we felt very secure with. They just didn't pay anything. We're talking about something like millions of dollars, and they only paid $192,000 in three years. If we had collected the non-resident income tax on this machinery leasing, they would have paid millions of dollars. And in fact, this audit resulted in a pretty good catch. The point is that we ourselves have no problems with so-called tax havens. But we do with high-tax countries. This is because of their own standards. Here we see that the Uruguayan company actually deducts 120 from the balance sheet without any type of limitation. To the extent that they enter into the tax base of the German company, which is 
So, in turn, we don't receive anything as to income tax from non-residents. And on top of that, in Germany, they tax 28% of that difference, 120 minus 119, which I already said was only $192,000. The 119 comes tax-free to Spain. The United States does not recognize the existence of a permanent establishment and Spain recognizes the permanent establishment. And as I explained, Spain did not tax via internal standards. So here's the end of this story. And it just didn't work out for them. This doesn't happen to us today, mainly because of all the cross-information we have to detect this possible planning. We have international taxation risk management. Well, thank you. I'll wrap up the presentation here. Thank you very much, Marcia, for sharing this experience. And I urge everyone who is an auditor or risk manager of multinationals to pay close attention. Because if you haven't seen this case yet, it's quite likely that it's happening in your respective countries in a similar way. So now, I'll give the floor to Veronica to talk to us about her case. Go ahead, Veronica. Thanks a lot for inviting me. I really appreciate the presentation of the Uruguayan case. I was looking at the case in the database, and it's really quite interesting. I'm not giving a PowerPoint presentation. I'm just going to tell you about a few cases we have. One we sent to CIAT in 2020. That's not in the database yet, but it is a case involving thin capitalization. This also stems from our risk analysis. At the time this case came up, we were working with a risk matrix where one of the factors was high levels of debt, coupled with transactions with related companies. These included accrued interest on financial loans received from abroad. This case surfaces from the risk matrix. It deals with a borrower who receives a loan for a period of five years with an interest rate close to 7% per year in dollars. The interest rate itself, after analysis based on the criteria of free competition, we understood that it was the market interest rate. Although there were some adjustments, certain characteristics, it was a more or less a market interest rate. That is, there was no objection on this side to the transaction. However, when delving deeper into the characteristics of the loan, what was seen was that it originated in reversal of reserves and distribution of dividends that corresponded to the capital, with amount due to dividends. The original purpose of the loan was to carry a financial debt to pay dividends due. Is this the actual characterization, or did the origination of the loan with these characteristics quickly lead to the assumption that it was a thin capitalization? The contractual terms were also quite particular. And, on the other hand, there were arrears in the payment of interest. They are entered as liabilities at the end of the year in which the loan was capitalized, but defaults are observed. And so, due both to the business strategy and the purpose of the loan, it became clear that this transaction is completely removed from the normal business logic that should occur between independent parties. And there are other kinds of circumstances on the part of the local taxpayer, like operating losses and some economic circumstances. This raises the suggestion that this taxpayer, if this person attempted to obtain a loan independently from third parties, would not receive a loan of this magnitude from truly independent parties. One issue that also stands out with the loan is that interest was deducted, but no payments were made, nor pay as you earn withheld. And, on the other hand, no capital ever came in either, as I mentioned earlier. 
because the loan corresponded to a dividend distribution due, which had been restructured as a loan. Therefore, in the analysis of the operation, the conclusion was made that the case should be audited. And it had to be framed as a thin capitalization. Applying the principle of economic reality present in our tax process code, the true nature of this operation was a capital transaction. It wasn't a loan, even if there was a loan agreement. By the criterion of economic reality, we could recharacterize it as thin capitalization. This is the first case I wanted to quickly comment on. The other case we had is one that appears in a database and that was submitted in 2018. It involves a distribution scheme, through which there is a manufacturing entity and a distribution entity in two different countries. But contractually, the transaction is handled through an intermediary located in a third country. We've previously spotted these types of cases. They are happening again today. We can state that probably more than 90% of export and import cases are done through intermediaries. The specific characteristic of this case is that there is also a different value of the transaction for customs purposes compared to the declared value for income tax purposes in Argentina. Corporate income tax. And that's what in this case sort of set off some alarms. It raises some flags as being risky. On this point, different countries have varying opinions on whether or not import and export transactions should have the same value for customs purposes and for income tax purposes. In this case, it was at least identified as a risky situation. Moreover, what's apparent in this case is that the price of goods entering the country is excessive compared to the price at which they leave the country where they are produced. The value of imports is excessive, eroding Argentina's tax base. And the duties performed by the intermediary do not justify that difference in price. Although in this vast number of cases that are handled through intermediaries, it may be that in some case the intermediary complies, performs certain tasks, assumes risks, or has assets that correspond to the compensation it is receiving. But in this particular case, no. I should mention that this case is perhaps older. But these days, in the case of Argentina, we are using the country-by-country country reports a lot in order to get an initial idea of the risk at the headquarters of intermediate countries. Or even for original purposes. From identifying the initial risk. In other words, we can use the country-by-country country report to detect whether there is a particular circumstance in any jurisdiction that has few assets, for example, or a very small number of employees, or a high level of profit. And, at the same time, a low level of taxes paid. Using these four criteria, we can now identify early cases at the origin. And then we analyze the transactions that Argentina has with these jurisdictions. In this case, submitted at the time, the country-by-country country reports were not yet available to provide this early identification. But the country-by-country country report would most assuredly have provided additional information. Or, it would have served at the time for early identification of risks and then continue analyzing the case. And finally, I still have a few minutes, I wanted to tell you about one more case, which we didn't submit. We've identified it probably for the jurisprudence database. It's a very interesting case for Argentina. This is a case of international treaty abuse that received a favorable decision by the Supreme Court of Justice. It concerns a company incorporated in a country with which Argentina has a treaty to avoid double taxation. In that country, through a special procedure, there is a company that is an investment platform company, which is not considered to be domiciled in that country, and this platform was used for the payment of dividends. 
What they did was restructure the form of dividend payments. Originally, dividends were sent directly to Argentina. Based on the possibility of locating these companies as investment platforms in another country, in this case in Chile, and what they did was restructure the transaction so that the dividends would go through Chile. And only then were they sent to Argentina. In this way, they avoided paying taxes on dividends, because it would be a case of double taxation. On the other hand, the treaty in effect at that time held that only dividends and profit sharing of companies were taxable, including returns or surpluses from cooperatives. But they would be taxed only by the state where the company distributing them is domiciled. As such, a situation developed in which, as these entities were not considered domiciled in Chile, they did not pay taxes in Chile on their income for these dividends that were received from other countries. However, considering that according to the agreement they should be taxed in the country of origin, which theoretically was Chile in this case, they could not be taxed in Argentina. So in this particular case, I'm not sure if I ended up explaining it well, but I think it was clear in the end. They got a double non-taxation. In both Chile and Argentina, these revenues came from third countries. The Argentine Supreme Court established that the taxpayer's practice was to obtain this double non-taxation. And there was no application of the good faith treaty by the taxpayer. Well, that's about it. And I think I've maxed out on my 15 minutes, so thank you. Thanks so much, Veronica, for talking about those three cases that gave us a bit of an idea on what's happening. And one thing that strikes me, but I understand why it happens, is that taxpayers decide to take very aggressive positions on known planning issues. And then you might say, well, how does this consultant come up with a capitalization? or a crude way of manipulating the transfer price. But I think one thing advisors know is that no matter how simple the case may seem, likewise for the administration, is a challenge to identify it and prove it. This is another matter. Prove what's happening. Recharacterize. In the end, the advisors know what administrative complexity is and that's why we see a lot of these kinds of cases that keep happening after 20 years in the statistics of our case base. And then you think, how can it be, when there's a rule, when there's knowledge? As I said, it's very difficult to identify and then prove. So thanks for that, Marcia. Thank you, Veronica. And I guess if I have a few minutes. If Umberto allows me, I could answer some questions that were asked during the presentations. Do I start by answering directly, or do you want to read the questions? I'll read the questions and you answer them. The first question we have is, to what extent is CIAT collaborating with other global organizations of tax administrations to update the database? For example, with the Pacific Islands Association of Tax Administrations or intra-European organizations of tax administrators. As you know, at CIAT we are chairing the NTO, the Network Tax Organization. The group is made up of nine regional tax organizations. We conduct many activities, but coordinating these types of databases is a long and slow process. This is because collecting the data is not all that easy. A certain capacity is required at an organization to be able to receive the data, clean it, and review it. There's this back and forth over and over again with the countries. Someone doesn't understand something and asks for clarification. 
So I believe that for each organization, even they are familiar with our databases and we discuss the possibility of expanding them to gain an overall view of what we're analyzing based on an already approved experience, our experience, a decision is needed from the regional organizations to dedicate time to something similar. And that's what we're talking about. Even the DIP Public Information Initiative, where my dream is for all regional offices to have global information on all countries. Public information. But it's a bit of a slow process because, as you know, regional organizations have small units and it's sometimes not very easy to take on new initiatives. Prior planning is required. That's the answer. Perfect. And the second, and last, to save a little time. Is there any analytical work being done on the data that has been collected to identify, based on typical cases, their motivators and, more broadly, possible solutions to make sure countries don't have to reinvent the wheel? Well, we did statistics. In fact, we've just shown what risks we've seen the most or the most audited economic sectors, or where more risks have been identified. We have some other information that comes out of the transfer pricing base and BEPS. But they're not all that easy to read. Because you have to consider, for example, when you look at the chart that Anarella showed about the most audited economic sectors, we could say, it seems that agriculture or mining don't have as much specific weight in the region. But note that we're reporting the repeat cases that have been reported to the base. Not all cases. Nor are we comparing cases by quantity or how it fits, for example, or for tax purposes. So there could be more cases in manufacturing, but fewer cases in agriculture and mining, but with a higher tax burden. In that case, you really need to look at the data very carefully. And we believe that this information we have is a sample, not the totality. And maybe, for the sample to be meaningful, we have to wait a bit longer. I think we need more cases. Today we have just under 40 cases in the database. And I think the number of cases needs to grow. What we've done is a document called the Cocktail of Measures for Transfer Price Control. This is where we've made some proposals based on cases that we've seen in countries, and that stem from the transfer pricing base. But I think it's a pending issue, and we probably have to wait for our initiative on tax planning cases to mature a little, and then sit down with the countries to see which case is of interest to other countries. We can gather to discuss a possible solution or possible solutions. If there's a vacuum at the international level, and so far we haven't found anything like it, but I think it deserves more discussion. I wanted to thank the audience for those two questions. And many thanks to Gonzalo, Anarella, Marcia and Veronica for their presentations, examples of cases and insights. Thank you very much. Thank you. The TEDAT Podcast is available free of charge. The views expressed in the TEDAT Podcast are those of the authors and do not necessarily represent those of the International Monetary Fund or the IMF policy. Materials from the podcast may be reproduced with proper attribution. Comments and correspondence may be emailed to podcast at tedat.org. TEDAT is a collaborative undertaking of the following partners. 
France, Germany, the International Monetary Fund, Japan, the Netherlands, Norway, Switzerland, the United Kingdom, and the World Bank.